0: This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at the Dendros Group.
1: I'm Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer.
2: And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojimba Indians.
3: And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories.
0: So, you know, there's there's a lot to talk about to, to, today, but it all kind of carries a central theme. Many of us, um, and especially those of us here in Counter Stories, work with communities and we're trying to constantly talk about the nuance um, and the complexities and the, and the covert and harder to see things and pa- racialized patterns that we experience on a daily basis. However... We are in a space in our society where we don't have to actually look all that far for the overt, the in your face, the right here in front of us, it's easy to understand and put your finger on. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. Um, Not just what is happening in terms of some of the overt things that we thought we were done with a long time ago, at least that our quote unquote public zeitgeist would like us to think it was over a long time ago, but also why um, that continues to be a need for us to not only address these, but to address it in law, to address it in terms of, of, the, of the policies that protect us, to, in terms of our daily interactions. And then we also see it evidenced in the way that our children begin to treat each other. Not just white children to children of color, which we've talked about a lot in the past from New Prague to others, but, but also between communities of color and how we internalize these things, and our children often show us what they're picking up from us. So we've got a lot to talk about today, but I want to start with some incidents that have been happening in Indian country around some overt policies and rules um, and just treatment (laughs) that uh, some of our Native brothers and sisters have been experiencing. So what's coming up for you, y'all, as we lay that out today?
2: Well, of course, you know me, Anthony, I'll jump right in there and take that take that hand fed lead you just dealt out so uh
0: <laughs> you're welcome
2: <laughs> but there in uh, in Rapid City South Dakota there is a a, uh, a hotel called the Grand Gateway Hotel and apparently there was a horrible incident that happened on the property there there was a shooting one of the individuals involved with that shooting was a native was native american And so the next day, the owner, one of the owners of the Grand Hotel, an adjacent uh, restaurant and bar, um, stated that because of this incident, that uh, they no longer were going to rent to uh, Native Americans and uh, posted it on social media. Um, You know, that's clear discrimination based on race. So there have been um, protests in South Dakota. Some of, the, uh, some of the tribes, some of the elected officials and other folks from some of the uh, Lakota tribes in, in uh, South Dakota um, over the weekend went and protested uh, the, grand, um, the Grand Gateway Hotel. There's an organization called Indian Collective, Their emphasis is on social and economic justice for Indian country, you know, dealing with colonization, cultural genocide, the whole that whole thing. And they're very young. They're very progressive. And they're doing um, they're sponsoring a lot of really um, energizing things in Indian country to kind of change some of this narrative. And so they twice have uh, went to this hotel and um, tried to check in. And the clerk looked at this uh, woman and said, well, I can't rent a room to you. And, and so the person, well, why not? And sh- and the clerk told her, well, we have a policy that uh, we don't rent to people local, who are local. And so they asked her, well, what do you mean? And so this clerk explained that um, they've had other local people who have rented rooms in the hotel, and they party and they trash the rooms. But they trashed them so much that they stopped renting to locals. And so they denied this woman and about five or six other Native women the ability to be able to um, rent rooms because they were local. You can't get much overt racism than that
0: there's there's i mean there's legal things here right like you 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 can't do you you can't do that <laughs> and i'm'm I'm, I'm curious you know why somebody even thought that that was um that 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 it was okay to do that you can do that what are what are some of the um uh, it's the Civil Rights Act prevents this from from happening, but at the same time, don't businesses do have the right to refuse service for certain things. I'm just curious where the line is with that.
3: This seems similar to the conversation that's still going through the courts right now, where folks were bakeries and such were denying gay couples their services. They wouldn't bake wedding cakes for uh, gay weddings. Right. Uh, and they were claiming it was their First Amendment right or their um, rights as as business owners. And so you, you're thinking on the one hand, yes, you should have the right to refuse service. But on the other hand, it's like if you say that, then anybody can do basically anything. And I don't know where that legal line is. And I I don't know if there is a legal line because it's those sorts of cases are still being worked out in the courts right now, aren't they? We'll ask our, our in-house lawyer here.
1: <laughs> Somehow I knew that was coming to me. Um, <laughs> like any good lawyer will say, it depends. It depends on a whole lot of uh, issues and, and variables in a case um, and nuances, I should say. The NDN Collective filed a lawsuit uh, in federal court against uh, the hotel. And I, um, I'm i also aware that the South Dakota Public Broadcasting um Got their hands on an email written by one of the owners of the hotel that states, and I quote, I really do not want to allow natives on property. The problem is we do not not know the nice ones from the bad natives, so we just have to say no to them. Exclamation point! Exclamation point! I mean, you can say
3: that about anybody. I don't know the I don't know the
1: good men from
3: the bad men. Don't let men in my establishment. I don't know the good people who the people with blue eyes who are good from the people who have blue eyes who are bad. So, well,
2: that would be the blue eyes and the brown eyes.
3: Yeah, exactly. Oh,
2: wow.
1: I mean, there's so many tales to this that we can go down that path. Ali, you're you're right with with those analogies. Um, But ultimately speaking, I mean, civil rights allow restrictions for private businesses when they are trying to restrict anything that has to do with the public accommodation. And so we're talking about here housing, you know, we're talking about hotels, we're talking about uh, schools and things of that sort where you still have to abide by these laws, right? And Mm Um, and you can't make this blanket statement about an entire group of people because you've had however many bad incidents, right? You have to start looking at what is it about your establishment that might be attracting folks? Um, do you have security on hand? Do you have posted rules about you can't engage in, you know, this type of behavior if it's criminal, right? Are you using law enforcement? I mean, there's so many other options for a hotel owner or manager to explore above and beyond this discriminatory uh, behavior on its face, the way it's come out to be for for this set of circumstances. Uh, And with regard to the women from the Indian collective that went, uh, Don, as you said, to the hotel to try to rent the rooms. That's called, you know, in our profession, testers, right? You send out these testers to test whether or not the discriminatory practice indeed takes place or is taking place. And and then you have firsthand account from folks that you have um, instructed how they should interact with the establishment, right? You're testing the behavior of this establishment to see if, in fact, they're perpetuating the alleged b- discrimination that that's at hand. Uh, in the past, when the department of human rights here in Minnesota had more funding and we're talking decades ago, they had a lot of testers for housing in the twin cities because housing discrimination was mm-hmm. very rampant. And um, I don't know recently the level of pervasiveness, but I, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. I mean, it happened to my now husband, and we weren't married at the time. Uh, He was out of law school for a year. Uh, He was trying to find an apartment with then his best friend, who also an attorney, and they went in St. Paul to rent an apartment. Um, My husband is black. Uh, The other gentleman is Latino. They they had an appointment. They went and they were told, nope, not available. Another friend of, of theirs went the next day and it was available. The other friend is a white person, a white male. Um, and we knew on its face that it was discriminatory, but where they were at in their lives, I mean, they, they didn't want to file an action. And I guess my point here is that this behavior is and this conduct by some of these establishments is probably more prevalent than we are led to understand because people don't always come forth and report it for one uh, but also the population that's being impacted here native folks don't always um, find themselves in headlines you know in terms of the media right the media doesn't always show their level of interest or empathy unless it's literally a black or white issue right and we've talked about this before uh, that the, the shades of, of brown that exist, whether it's in Native country, the API, AAPI community, or the Latinx community, we don't often see the level of care, interest, and empathy that is uh, extended in, uh, in, you know to the Black community on a large scale uh, in some circumstances when it impacts us. You know, And it saddens me because for many reasons, but first and foremost, our our native brothers and sisters are native to this land. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it always is just a point of further injury in my mind when as a society, we don't elevate those concerns uh, and the conduct that's being injurious to the native population in the same way. And and it saddens me quite honestly, um, that we we as a as as a community have not prioritized that the way we should be prioritizing it,
0: you know, loose loose that there's 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 a lot in what you just said. And thank you for breaking to for running that down, but it but it 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 brings up for me the personal experience factor. I, I I wish I could say that these are on the margin experiences, but just as you were able to show your husband's experience, I had a similar experience buying my house, right? When 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 we crossed that threshold to get to the place of being able to buy a house, if if the seller saw me earlier in the process for the houses that we were looking at, um, I could just guarantee, <laughs> or I just had this sinking feeling that that wasn't going to work out. That somehow that 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 our offer, our deal, wasn't gonna wasn't wasn't gonna be accepted. And and sure enough, you know, in in this, in when we bought this house, I listened to what some of my my uh, friends who are realtors of color had told me. I, I did all the interactions on the phone. Um, I, 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 when I toured it, I toured with my with the realtor. You know, I had a neighbor come and tell me that they buried a, a, a statue of some patron saint of good neighbors um, because they wanted to have good neighbors and then proceeded to to, to tell me how to upkeep. Uh, the lawn because um, they just assumed that that was going to be an issue. I have one one friend who's a realtor who's like, I do everything I can to handle everything on the phone until it's a moot point.
3: See but you got you have a name that that you can hide until they see you in person on the day of closing. I don't. That's real. I don't. It's <laughs> like you see my name on the paper, you know. Yep, I'm an Irish, I'm a, I'm a
0: Scott Irishman, until so they see me face to face.
3: I've actually had the experience of when I was in college, and I was dating a Mexican guy, Jose, and I was looking for an apartment near campus. I was going to school at the University of St. Thomas, and I was living at home in Little Canada. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can find a studio apartment near campus. So I found one, I was on the phone with a very nice lady, and usually over the phone, it's easier to like, you know, I pronounce my name Holly. Mm-hmm. A lot switch. of people yeah. assume it's Holly or something like that. So she said, everything's good. I, you know, and so she's like, come on over and come see the unit. So we drove from, you know, he, we we're at his house and he lives on uh, the west side. And we drove all the way to the Mac Groveland area, got to the building. Like, this is the same day. She was like, come, come by now. And I was like, okay, great. And I got there and she was like an older white lady And as I walked up to her, she came out to greet us. And she said, Mm -hmm. oh, the apartment's been rented. Mm -hmm. Like within a 30-minute span of her seeing me and Jose arrive to look at the unit. And it's been rented. And I remember going, but we were just on the phone. And she was like, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. And then she like rushed inside and locked the door. And I'm standing there. And I'm like, you know, 19 years old. And I'm going, what the F? Did that Did that just happen? And just so dumbfounded, I didn't know how to react. Like yeah. I stood there and I didn't, you know, and so like Luz was saying, a lot of people don't even report these sorts of things, right? I mean, she it was a big apartment complex. I'm sure, you know, she didn't own the building. She might have been, you know, the property manager. But I didn't know what to do after that. I just walked away and said, I don't want to deal with this. So I never did anything about it. I was young, I didn't know what to do.
2: You know, for the Native American community in South Dakota, this latest incident, I think is just part of an, part of the, uh, highlights the relationship that Native Americans have had to deal with, not only nationwide, but particularly in South Dakota, um, ever since they created the reservations there. And when we look back at history, The Lakota Dakota um, stood their ground and fought for their way of life, and they have been mistreated by the federal government in the state of South Dakota Mm -hmm. ever since that time. And if you want to visit a third-world country, um, stop in on one of the reservations in South Dakota. It's uh, incredibly—it's just incredible how how um, they are mistreated there. And in terms of, you know, the fact that this woman publicly made this statement at not only, you know, at least they could see where it was coming from. Usually it's this these kind of actions tend to be a little more subtle or not even subtle. So, you know, during the election, if you remember, the governor of South Dakota uh, or the legislature in South Dakota passed legislation. That um, you could not vote if you didn't have a home address, where residents on reservations, tribal members who live on reservations, don't, their mail isn't delivered to a home address, it's delivered to a post office box. And so, without having a home address, uh, it disenfranchised Native Americans from voting. I mean, so there have been overt and covert um incidences happening to indian people in south dakota forever
3: i mean the thing also with this situation Don, was you, like you're saying it was so overt right not only were they so public they they wrote it on their social media they're like yes this is what we're doing now they even reached out to other hotel owners to to find support and this is what really boggles my mind was they were they they put in place this really horrible policy and the community said, that's so messed up. And so then they turned to look for support from other folks who also said, that's so messed up. So then they just keep turning and looking for folks to support them versus reflecting on, hey, is it messed up what we're doing? Instead of doing that reflection, they're going around looking for people to say, yes, you guys are right in doing this terrible thing. And that's is that where our society is now where we can't even say, we can't even look at the things that we may be doing wrong and say, oh, shoot, I was so wrong in that. But instead, we're just going, "Nope, I'm right, no matter what everybody else in the whole world is saying to me right now.
2: And when we relate that back to our incidences here in housing, you know, I, we've all yeah, you know, I think we've all had those experiences. And, and I think, in a, you know, in the previous counter stories I mentioned that um you know the first house that Mara and I bought um I did the same thing as Anthony I let Mara go and view the house meet the meet the sellers I had her engage with all that and and I've mentioned before that that um uh, that uh Mara is white and um so she get, she handled all that until the day we signed the contract then I showed up and and for the very same reason, Anthony, and knowing that if I had showed up any earlier in that process, we would have lost out on that, buying that home. And and that was in the same neighborhood I think you're talking about. That was in the Como neighborhood.
1: This discussion brought up a, another memory that, quite honestly, I, I, I had suppressed, which was we had gone to visit family in Cicero, which is a suburb right outside of Chicago. And historically it had been a very white area and and not welcoming to blacks. My husband and I had gone to visit my sister-in-law and by then uh, the demographics of Cicero had changed and more Mexicans were were moving in. And we parked across the street from her apartment. We're we're staying for the weekend. uh, So we have our luggage with us. And as we cross the street and start heading into her apartment, we noticed that there are um, neighbors on the other side of her apartment congregated on their front stoop, and they were looking at us like they just saw a ghost. We get into the apartment, and within two minutes, my sister-in-law's phone rings, and you could see her face just go white. And she had tears in her eyes, and she didn't say anything other than, okay, and she hung up. And I looked at her. And I I said to her, was that your landlord? And now she's crying. She's not even talking. I said, so did your landlord Mm. just call you and tell you that we can't stay here because my husband is black? And she's crying. Mm. And she says, yes. And I said, I knew that would happen because I saw those ladies next door and their reaction. Uh, And I said, we're leaving right now. And she's crying. You know, we're family. And she's telling me not to leave. I said, look, you have to live here. And it, it's hard as a single mom to find an apartment that is affordable, that is safe for you and your daughter. I'm not, we're not going to disrupt that. And we left within minutes of, of stepping into her apartment. And to this day, she can't forgive herself for that. And I said, you know, this wasn't your fault. You had nothing to do with it. Uh, but she didn't even have to say. She didn't have to tell me the conversation because I could tell by the look on her face and the tears in her eyes and the proximity of that phone call coming in, what it was about. Did we report it to anybody? No. Did we report it to law enforcement? No. You know, I mean, there are, I would venture to guess hundreds, if not thousands of examples of this that any one of our listeners who are from BIPOC communities can attest to and have lived through this.
3: There are also the there are also the, the microaggression version, right? Where not they might not have called the landlord on you, but there are other things that people in community and for our white listeners that you may do or say when you meet your new neighbors that you don't maybe you think is funny or you don't think is offensive, but is. And those are the things like when when we moved into our neighborhood and we went around, you know, in St. Paul, you don't. You have to pay to plow your alleyway, right? The city doesn't pay for it. And so one person on the blocks collects like 12 bucks a year. So we moved in during the winter. We were taking our little check to the neighbor and she opens the door and she goes, oh, are are you guys the new neighbors? And we're like, yeah, you know, we introduce ourselves and me, my older white husband. And she goes, "Okay, hold on. She turns around,
1: yells upstairs, Bob, you have to come see this. Like you guys are freaks in a sh- freak show or something. <laughs> wow. So so you Yeah.
0: But but here's the thing. You you call that overt or covert or or or, or more micro um, but that, <laughs> that doesn't sound very micro that. to me. <laughs> There's nothing micro about and, that. But 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 here's the thing. To the di- to to a pro- to a to somebody who is disconscious of the daily experience and the nuance and all these things that are coming out and unfortunately our society has proven disconscious of a lot of these things largely because some of us don't ever have to interact with it and 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 don't 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 you know or or, or get to to put it as and, and to to see it as marginal but but actually <laughs> as you as you began to even when she, the moment you said she called and yelled upstairs my radar started to move just like what Luz was saying about not even having to 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 have it. what's happening going down to be explained. So right. I don't see that as micro at all. She didn't think
3: when she said it. And to me, it was like, you know, I could laugh it off because it's like I'm going to live by this lady for the next how long? I don't want to <laughs> walk in the for my first meeting with her and be like, uh-uh, honey, you don't do that, right? You don't so want it's no like, smoke okay, on a
0: regular basis.
3: Exactly. <laughs> And so I'm like, okay, so now what do, you know, how do I react? And my reaction was just, all right, you know, I look to my husband, like, all right, deal with this. So, you know, it's my husband's job to talk to them when they come around Mm. and, and he's just like accepting, like, he's like, okay, that's my job, like that. That's what it is, and
0: we live in the hood, you know. So, so you know, we 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 started this kind of outlining the fact that from from the experience of our native brothers and sisters that Don laid out for us to even our own personal experiences, we we in our in our best of days are trying to figure out how to explain the nuanced pieces, the the stuff that's harder to see. But we have so many examples of the right here in front of your face. I, uh, my daughter's birthday was was this past weekend, and and we had had gone to the mall of America we we were hoping to do something with with um some of some of our cousins it didn't it didn't pan out that uh, that way so we ended up just going to eat and and um she loves 5 below like i don't i don't i don't get it um you know i if you want to do cheap stuff the dollar store is supposed to be the cheap one but 5 below seems swankier i guess apparently to the kiddos so so we're we're there and i watched this group of white boys walk through and they've got chopsticks in their hands coming from having eaten someplace and they're in there, they're they're messing with the chopsticks, and it wouldn't have stood, stood out except for the fact that I also watched this, this older uh Asian gentleman walk past me and towards them. And immediately my radar starts to go in, and I'm like, oh, so I, I start walking close behind the, the 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 Asian brother because I'm like, please don't. I just wanna see it if, if if this is gonna happen like it is. I assumed that these kids would just walk past and there would be nothing, right? These kids not only look at him, they look at each other, smile and joke. And as he walks by them, they, he starts like, doing like he's trying to hold his head in the chopsticks and hold the chopsticks together at this Asian gentleman coming by. I, I don't know if the Asian brother saw it or not. I don't see how he could not have seen it. But he walked past and tried to do the, I'm not going to acknowledge it. Man. So I'm standing right there in the pathway. And these boys are looking and laughing and good, uh, uh, looking at each other. So I just stand there. I stand tall and I just take all the expression off my face and I'm just waiting to catch their eyes when they walk past. And sure enough, these boys look up, they catch my eyes and immediately, you know, there's that, that that freeze moment like, oh, did he see that? Oh, what is it saying? And I'm looking at him like, yeah, I watched the whole thing, homie. And I get my eyes got a little big and I'm like, yep, I watched the whole thing. And then they hurry up and you know look down and just kind of walk past real quick. I can I continuously try to wrap my head around how to explain the subtle things that add up over time, but but the overt things are right here in front of us still. You know the comments that you hear whenever somebody walks past, uh, uh, or or or, or, or um, you know I, I often will post up outside the five below uh, at the Mall of America and just listen to people's conversations. There tends to be more younger folks and people of color five below that just seems to be the stretch that Walgreens and there's five below then then for some reason the the black light mini golf which is just it's just a spot for some reason I don't know why but you know but I listen to the conversations go by and if I just sit and listen long enough and it doesn't usually take all that long I will hear some comments that folks don't know that other folks are paying attention to. And the overt is right there in front of our in front of our face, and so that's. I just wanted to bring that in. There's there's a reason that we need um, you know policies and practices, and we think that we don't need these civil rights legislation, we don't need these laws passed, except for the fact that we're not far from folks taking racial violence on their hands. We talked about the Asian women, we talked about um, you know you know this, the the extrajudicial killings of, of black males, and then the indigenous brothers and sisters who get no mention in the news stories at all. And so we have to have policy to do that. You know, Luz, you've been paying attention to uh, the civil, the, the uh, Emmett Till anti-lynching law.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, that's a, a perfect segue there. And uh, I was going to make a, a similar point with that the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was passed this week. Uh, President Biden signed it into law. It's the first law that makes lynching a federal hate crime after, um, it was passed actually unanimously in the Senate, surprisingly, uh, this month. And for those folks, uh, who are not aware who Emmett Till was, he was a 14 year old boy, uh, African-American boy who was accused of whistling at a white woman in 1955. She actually accused him of whistling at her and putting his hands on her. Of course, she later recount, recanted and, and, uh, confessed that it had never happened, but he, Emmett, was then uh, kidnapped, beaten, and brutally murdered while his killers were never convicted. And again, killed and tortured uh, based on a lie. Uh, and, you know, you, you think about how, well, let me tell you a little bit about the law, and then I'll tell you about the struggle. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. The law now imposes a prison term of up to 30 years for any person who commits a hate crime that results in death, serious injury, or that includes kidnapping, sexual abuse, or an attempt to kill. And if you think about it, uh, the killers of Ahmaud Arbery, had this been in place, would have been charged with that. The Derek Chauvin would have been charged with this uh, for killing uh, George Floyd. and There, there unfortunately, are, are many other examples. But this is an effort that has been in place legislatively for over 120 years. The fact that it took this long to get this type of law passed. You know, federal hate crimes, any hate crime, is really difficult to prove, uh, and so the standard is is quite high. Uh, so it's not as if this is an everyday type of prosecution that is successful. Um, but just think about what it took in society for this to finally pass. I mean it is it is just amazing to me on so many for so many reasons as to the need for it one, it to your point, Anthony, it's going on now, right? The the hate crimes, the hate that Don spoke of earlier with this hotel co-owner, uh, the hate that we speak about, you know, in terms of how we've been treated, our families and ourselves. This is real. Whether it's over or covert, it's happening.
0: When we think about the difference in a distance in time, Jefferson and Reagan were alive while Harriet Tubman was alive. Let's just let's just keep that for for context because you talked about 120 years to pass this an anti-lynching law with all the work that had been done from everybody from from Ida B Wells to 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 um even even um in the American Indian movement trying to call attention Earlier, earlier, earlier on of the issues for missing and murdered Indigenous women, even in its even even in the early days of its founding, we're speaking to some of those issues that were happening at even then. So these aren't new concepts, but just put that into context. That if you want to think about that stuff as really, really, really old. Understand that a lot of our history happened in a short time frame. When when Thomas Jefferson was still alive, Harriet Tubman was had was born, and Harriet Tubman was still alive when Ronald Reagan was born. We are not removed. And when you talk about the the, the lynching law, I'm two generations, and, and, and actually there were members of my family who were alive in ways that I could talk to them who had witnessed lynchings in their area because we only have record in terms of numbers, of the public reported lynchings that fit a certain definition. We aren't talking about the Native folks. We aren't talking about the Latinx folks in the Southwest in particular where lynching was still used. And, you know, uh, we, we don't talk about the fact that lynching became so ubiquitous that postcards and picnics in many parts of the country uh, invariably coincided with the lynching or killing of, of, of people of color, in particular Black folks. I mean, in Texas, they had a practice at one point Um. Uh. Where. Uh. Where they would. They would put you in a burlap sack and put a low fire under you and smoke you to death, just. Just to outdo. Uh. The folks like in Okoe, where they would be removal of parts and burning you all the way through. In Duluth, we saw the. You know. We. we're, We're not far from it. That's the piece I'm trying to put forward here. Is that. Is that. This law is being passed now. And it's for a reason, and it's because we are still seeing these overt things that it is still possible for somebody to die in this way that that meets the, the conditions of this lynching law. So to think that we are so far removed from that is a luxury that some of us don't get to have. And I think that's really pointed and important uh, that you brought that, that passage of that law here, but also the reasoning for it. The overt is still here in our face. And here's the scoop. If you want to look at the evidence of it, I always say, look to the babies. The fact that I could see these teenagers going down that route, knowing good and well what they were doing. And I had this, I got to stop there and look them in the eye and show them that, hey, yeah, your behavior is on display, homie. And I'm watching you. Right. Um, But that is also happening internalizing to our own communities. One of the things that's starting to come up in in, in some of the schools are tensions between uh, black and Asian students. If you want to see where a society is happening, see what their children are doing because they mimic our, their adults. Um, and they're starting to have tensions with each other using these racial stereotypes that we've been talking about, you know, mostly in terms of dominant culture to communities of color. But there's a way that communities of color, we internalize um, this white oppression. We internalize um, these these stereotypes against each other. And so right now we have students in schools who are, are using racial epithets back and forth. They're using stereotypes back and forth. They're causing tensions. There are fights and arguments and confrontations and conflict um, that is ensuing in particular between a new popula- a newer population, Korean students, and black students in some of our school spaces. And, and I know sometimes we overhype the rift and divide between black and Asian communities. I get that. But in this case, we, we are seeing real fights, real conflicts happening. Um, and, and Lee, you even spoken about it, some of the things that were happening in terms of uh, our elders on, on buses and light rail, some assaults that were happening on Black and Asian elders um, by, by Black and Asian youth. Um, kind of a tit for tat. I know I interrupted one. There was one on the light rail right off of Hamlin and University that I had to get in the middle of because there were these young brothers who was, who was swearing up to to and and their response when I when I stepped in uh, was you don't know what 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 this crew over here did to an old lady over you know in this other way and I'm like whoa 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 <laughs> you know so so I I, I want to talk a little bit about the ways in which we we see that internalization of some of this overt stuff, even amongst each other in our own communities. Um, you know, I, will begin with just that example of having to engage in that conversation, um, with those, with those young folks, but also seeing what's happening in some of the conflicts that are happening in some, some of our St. Paul's public schools, um, where, where I reside. Um, so I'm just curious what comes up for you as you think about, you know, how this, these overt examples make its way into the fiber of our very own communities stereotypes, things like that.
3: Well, I think as far as like the, the Blasian issue, mm-hmm. right. That we've talked about before.
1: It's like, we, we have to, to talk well, about. Maybe you, you um, explain Blasian for some oh. <laughs> <or> so <many. laughs>
3: We say, we say Blasian as like black Asian. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that Anthony and I've talked a lot about of doing maybe, um you know, a separate podcast. Uh, talking about that intersection because this isn't new. This Black Asian kind of headbutting isn't something new. It happened when I was young. It happened before, you know, we were here. Uh, the Hmong folks were here. It's continuing to happen. It's happening with the Karen kids now. Um, I, I think a big thing that would really help is to learn each other's histories while we're mm-hmm. young. Agreed. Because one thing was, like, I grew up on the West Side. It was super diverse. We, ha- you know, the, the minority in our schools were white kids, right? But we learned very little about anybody else. I went to a school called Cherokee, and we learned nothing about Indigenous folks. We learned very little about the history of um, black, uh, black people in America, you know, we kind of covered the whole slavery thing, kind of a little bit, just like oh, and then we, and then we were like, oh, you should be free, and everybody was happy. The end, right? Um, we learned nothing about Asian people, and then we're we're all put in this room together, and you know, a lot of conflicts occur. And I feel like our stories are all so similar. It's like if we knew, mm. you know, it, we shouldn't have to wait until we're adults and we have, we get to have these conversations to learn like, oh my God, we are all so similar.
0: I, I had a plea to that point. I had a group of, of mostly Korean and black students in a summer program. We were doing an, uh, a dare to be real summer institute. And it was mostly black and Korean students. And I'll never forget the conversation when we had everybody kind of bring your favorite food from home and talk about when, when that food rolls out and what does he love about it. And everybody brought these and their cultural stories together. And we got into a conversation just about names. And in that conversation, we not only did we go through Black history and Korean history um, that helped to n- not only specifically address those some of those tensions, but one of the Korean students talked about the fact that their teacher had changed their name. And I know we did that podcast already, but before <laughs> they even said, you know, said said anything, a teacher changed their name, didn't talk to their parents, didn't and this is the name that's in the system for them. They went in and changed it, right? And and all those Korean students were like, Yeah, I experienced that too. And it was funny because one of the one of the students of colors, uh one of the black students in particular, said, Hey, they mess my name up all the time, but at least they don't change my name in the system. You know what my mom would do if they heard that somebody tried to change my name um, in there? And it was like it didn't even occur. Uh, for the uh, Korean students, and things came up like, uh, well, they don't want to rock the boat, or, or I didn't want to cause any trouble, or things like that. These are the kids it, who were saying It gets even this.
3: worse though than that. Is that a big reason why a lot of Korean kids' names are changed within the system? Is because the system does not accept two letters for a name. Mm. You have to have a minimum of three letters to be considered a name in the United States for some reason, in a lot of these pre-built systems. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these new immigrants have two or one letter names that are not recognized by the system. That and, you know, and, you know we all get nicknames because our teachers can't say our names. And instead of embarrassing themselves, they embarrass us.
1: You know, well, Halea, and, I'm, I'm glad you right. said that because I, it's, it's, I think this is a good moment to help people understand a little bit more about the Korean community because when I know in the past when I've talked about it, Some folks give me this kind of puzzled look like, what is she talking about? But I don't know that I want to ask, you know, because it's almost like they they glaze over with too much information. So really briefly, uh, we're talking about Myanmar, you know, folks from Myanmar Mm -hmm. who have uh, resettled in, in the U.S. And in fact, Minnesota is home to the largest concentrated population of Korean people outside of Myanmar. Uh, it's
0: Burma, isn't
1: it? Well, Burma is the the previous, the The old, yeah, the previous, uh, name of the, of the country. Um, and you know, in 2017, there were, uh, just over 17,000 current folks. I I don't know what the, the current information is in terms of the 2020 census, but, um, they're largely in terms of demographics, largely settled in St. Paul and Maplewood, um, And, Haley, to your point about three letters, when you're looking at the the languages that current folks speak, there are three main languages, um, and I I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to spell it. Uh, S-G-A-W is one. And then the next two are three letters also in terms of the languages, right? P-W-O and P-A-O. So you think about just how systemically, Our our systems and our understanding, whether it's education or outside of education, even in an employment setting, there are changes that we as a society need to change and make changes to accommodate folks whose culture is so different than Main Street culture here. But think about it that held true for Italians, you know, 150 years ago, for the Irish. Uh, heck, for folks from, you know, any one of the Slavic areas or, you know, the Swedish areas, Finnish areas. I mean, it's a matter of time. And I think just becoming more aware of other cultures and communities, as both of you have just said and reminded us, it's not that hard. Right. We just have to have an open mind to welcome the different uh, dialects that are coming our way and cultures that are coming our way and being able to welcome other folks from from other places in the world.
0: That's and that's that's exactly it to your point, Lee. around learning each other's histories. This group in this summer that were able to do what you just said, Luz, and what you were, were were alluding to, Flea, they they had that conversation. They found solidarity in the name convention thing, where those kids were like. They turned to the folks, the, the administrators in the room, and said, "Hey, do you want you have access to that? Can you put our names correctly in the system?" And the system that is there, and it may not in the in the federal system or, or things like that, but in this school system, it is possible to have a two letter name. There are a lot of ties who I've seen come and be registered as that in in administrative systems working in school districts, and they changed them. They went, they they put them, they put them right back in there, and say, "We'll, we'll walk with you to have that conversation," but the solidarity that was built out to your point, Flea, it absolutely happened. And and because they had that experience together, it was a lot harder to start lobbying these overt um, things that we've been talking about to each other because now we have a little we have a, a better bond. I, I really hope that we can we can move the needle on having some of those intersections. The thing is, that the thing that gets me about it though is how easy it is for us to internalize that. I grew up with jokes about Asian folks. Um, particularly around driving, I grew up with with horrible jokes and stereotypes about Latin Latinx folks, which I have a problem with because I think there's a room for have talk about the African identity of Latinx uh, space. But but I'll save that for a different conversation, Luz. <laughs> um, but but um, how easy it is for us to internalize it. But all of the net output, the net outcome, like me ha- d- uh, delivering that kind of vitriol against native folks, it doesn't elevate me. It doesn't give me any privilege at the end of the day. It keeps a system that still puts white at the top and black at the bottom at the end of the day. And so or, or you know, or, or, you know, depending on where you are, that changes in many ways. Indigenous folks outcomes are are even worse than African-American community spaces. And so, you know, but but at the end of the day, even when we when we internalize suppression and give it to each other, it doesn't. It doesn't elevate either one of us. It just upholds what's already continuing to be true, and that's a that's the thing that gets me about that internalization.
2: And here we are back, back having that hub and spoke conversation again. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so because and and it, it's it's cyclical, right? And so, mm. you know, and and there's so many other variables involved with this dynamic. I mean, you know, we saw. I think. Uh, A similar experience happened when when Somali started immigrating to the Twin Cities, especially into South Minneapolis and to the Phillips neighborhood. And the Phillips neighborhood was traditionally um, the one area where Native Americans were allowed to move in. And so when you have another group that comes in and displaces the previous group, it causes tensions. And there were tensions in those two communities for a long time till they finally sat down and talked that through and worked it out and um you know I, I remember when um when you know it, it and it seems to be cyclical because when the Hmong came over, I remember black comedians making jokes about that that they had nothing they had nothing against the Hmong until they came over here and learned how to say the N-word. I mean, you know, that was a stand-up comedy routine, and so it was—it's cyclical, you know. But you had you had touched on this subject uh, just you know moments earlier, where you talked about how we internalize these kind of things. We're not immune
3: mm-hmm.
2: to the to those, right? We're not, you know. We use different terms, you know. When when I would talk about this in the comparative racial class. We are we are all we are we're all exposed to these internalizations, these biases, these stereotypes, and you know, and the the uh, I think the examples I have always used is you know I grew up in North Minneapolis, and North Minneapolis was adjacent to Northeast Minneapolis, and back in the fifties and the sixties, um, there was extreme, there were still strong cultural ties. In different ethnic groups. And Northeast Minneapolis was comprised of different, I I think, uh, Slavic and Eastern European descendants, right? There were a lot of Poles and Ukrainians and others that lived in Northeast Minneapolis at the time. And for whatever reason, they did not like black folk at all. And so in the black community... You know, when I was growing up, there being a black indigenous individual surrounded by black neighbors, very few Native Americans, but uh, many blacks and, and many Jews at that time, we grew up telling Polish jokes. Now, I don't know if everybody, you know, everybody else grew up telling or in fact, we used to call them Polak jokes. But we grew up telling Polak jokes until I got older, and then I realized, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we were learning Pollock jokes because they were the ones right next door to us, calling us names. So you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, those are those are just great examples of how we internalize those kind of things, and then you perpetuate know, it. And
0: I, I, you, you remind me again, Luz, You, you, you surface this because there's a suppress, there's a repression that can happen with certain things, right? But, but there's a moment of joy that I had just, just, just to show what's possible. Um, I remember, so, so there were tensions when I was growing up too between Black and Asian community spaces, but there were also these really interesting intersections where we found these things we had together. Like, like I'll, hey, listen, one thing I can be sure of is that when I have uh, Asian friends over, particular Hmong friends over, and I make collard greens... Folks is gonna go throw down on them collard greens. We share it together, <laughs> um, and so there are these moments of overlap that 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 if we could put those onto the table and have folks understand how <clears> our I wouldn't
3: know Anthony if you said they
0: would, do. Would, oh I sure haven't made you greens yet. Okay, you know what?
3: <laughs>
0: but I've I'm made gonna, others. I'll, so you tasted other things? Bring please.
3: you greens. If you bring greens, okay? We'll <laughs> Sounds swap. like a plan. And All right. I think that is,
0: the, that is the opportunity that's in front of us now. We, we can do that kind of cross-comparative um, building across and show how, our, how our, our, our liberation is bound into each other. I think that's the thing that I can pull out of here is, I'm gonna start looking for more ways that we can do that to drive out this internalization that we often do. Mm-hmm. Look, we can go a whole lot of different places, and we're just scratching the surface. But that's the nature of counterstories because this isn't the conversation that's on every that's that's the everyday conversation. It still always feels like we're just scratching the surface, and there's so much nuance to do. But I think we can at least put a good dent or start in dealing with the fact that we've got overt examples to deal with and show that we've got a lot of conversations and work to do. Listen, um, let's make greens together, I love it. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church, senior partner at Dendros Group.
1: And Anthony, before I introduce myself or sign off, I wanna say, united we stand, divided we fall. So the better that we are united uh, as BIPOC communities, heck, as broader communities at that, the stronger we will be together. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General of the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer.
2: As a Black, Indigenous individual, I eat plenty of greens. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians.
3: And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories.
0: This has been Counter Stories. Let's all eat greens together. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, The Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.